Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Mira Lane. Mira is the Partner Director of Ethics and Society at Microsoft. Mira, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you, and I'm excited to dive into this conversation with you. Uh, I saw that you are a video artist and technologist by background. Uh, how did you come to your looking away? Is that correct? No, that's absolutely true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I noted that you're a video artist. Um, how did you come to work at the intersection of ethics and society and AI? For sure. Um, so let me, Sam, let me give you a little bit of a background on how I got to this point. Um, I actually have a mathematics and computer science background. I'm uh I'm from the University of Waterloo in Canada, and so I've had an interesting journey. But um, and I've, you know, I've been a developer, program manager, and designer. And uh, when I think about video art and artificial intelligence, I'll touch artificial intelligence first, and then the video art. But um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to take a sabbatical, and I do this every few years. Uh, I take a little break, reflect on what I'm doing, retool myself as well, and. Um, and so I decided to spend three months just doing art. A lot of people take a sabbatical and they travel, but I thought I'll just, I'm just going to do art for three months. And it was luxurious and very, um, special. But then I also thought I'm going to reflect on career at the same time. And, um, and I was looking at what was happening in the technology space and feeling really unsettled about where technology was going, how people were talking about it the way I was seeing it affect our societies. And I thought, I want to get deeper into the AI space. And so when I came back to Microsoft, I started poking around the company and said, is there a role in artificial intelligence somewhere in the company? And something opened up for me in our um, AI and research group where they were looking for a design manager. So I said, absolutely, I'll I'll run one of these groups for you. But um, before I take the role, I would, I'm would. i demanding that we have an ethics component to this work mm. because what they were doing was they were um, taking research that was in the AI space and figuring out how do we productize this because at that point, um, research was getting so close to engineering that we were developing new techniques and you were actually able to take those to market fairly quickly. And I thought this is a point where we can start thinking about responsible innovation and, and let's make that a uh, formalized practice. Mm-hmm. So um, me taking the role for the, the design manager was contingent on us creating a spot for ethics at the same time. And um, and so backing up a little bit, the video part comes in because I've traditionally been a really analog artist, been a printmaker, a painter. And during my sabbatical, I sought, I sought um some more digitized, like looked at digitizing some of the techniques that I was playing with on the analog side. And I thought, well, let me go play in the video space for a while. And so for three months, I just, like I said, I retooled and I started playing around with um, different ways of recording, um, editing, and um, teaching myself some of these techniques. And one of the goals I set out at the time was, well, can I get into um, a festival? You know, can I get into a, a music or a video festival? And so that was one of my goals at the end of the three months. Can I produce something interesting enough to 
get admitted into a festival. And I won a few actually. So, so I was super pleased. I'm like, okay, well that means I'm, I've got something there. I need to continue practicing. But, um, that for me opened up a whole new door. And, um, and one of the things that I did a few years ago also was to explore art and with AI and, and could we create a little AI system that could mimic my artwork and become a little co-collaborator with myself? So uh, we can dig into that if you want, but it was a really interesting journey around can AI actually complement an artist or even replace an artist? And um, and so I, there's some interesting learnings that came out of that experience. Okay, yeah. interesting, interesting. We're accumulating a nice list of things to, to yeah. touch on here. Absolutely. Ethics and your views on that was at the top of my list. But before we got started, you mentioned work that you've been doing exploring culture Mm -hmm. and the intersection between culture and uh, AI. And I'm curious what that means for you. Uh, It's certainly a topic that I hear brought up quite a bit, um, particularly when I'm talking to folks in enterprises that are trying to adopt AI technologies and you hear all the time, oh, well, one of the biggest things we struggle with is culture. And so maybe, um, I don't know if that's the right place to start, but maybe we'll start there. What does that mean for you when you think about kind of culture and AI? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And uh, I agree that one of the biggest things is culture. And the reason why I say that is if you look at every computer scientist that's graduating, none of us have taken an ethics class. And you look at the impact of our work it is touching the fabric of our society. Like it is touching our democracies and our freedoms, our civil liberties. And those are powerful tools that we're building, yet none of us have gone through a formal ethics course. And um, and so the discipline is not used to talking about this. It's, you know, a few years ago, you were just like, oh, I'm just building a tool. I'm building an app. I'm building a platform that people are using. Mm-hmm. And um, we weren't super introspective about that. It's It wasn't part of the culture. And so when I think about culture in the AI space, because we're building technologies that have scale and power and are building on top of large amounts of data um, that empower people to do pretty impressive things, this whole question of culture and asking ourselves, well, what could go wrong? How could this be used? Who is going to use it, you know, directly or indirectly? And those are parts of the culture of technology that I don't think has been formalized. It's you usually hear designers talking about that kind of thing. It's part of human-centered design. Um, but even in the human-centered design space, it's really about like, what is my ideal um, user or my ideal customer and not thinking about, well, how could we exploit this technology in a way that we hadn't really intended? And mm-hmm. um, and we've talked about that from a, an engineering context, the way we do you know, threat modeling. How could a system be attacked? How do you think about denial of service attacks? Things like that. But we don't talk about it from a, how could you use this to harm communities? How could you use this to harm individuals? Or um, how could this be inadvertently harmful? And so those parts of cultures are things that we're grappling right with right now. And, um, you know, we're introducing into our engineering context. So my group sits at an engineering level and uh, we're trying to introduce this new framework around responsible innovation. And there's um, five big components to that. One is 
being able to anticipate, look ahead, anticipate different futures, look around corners and try to see where the technology might go, how someone could take it, insert it into larger systems, how you can do things at scale that are powerful that um, you may not intend to do. Um, there's a whole component around that, uh, this, this in, you know, responsible innovation that is around reflection and looking at yourselves and saying, well, where do we have biases or where are we assuming things? Um, what are our motivations? Can we have an honest conversation about our motivations? Why are we doing this? And can we ask those questions? How do we create the space for that? Um, we've been talking about, you know, diversity and inclusion. Like how do you bring diverse voices into the space, especially people that would really object to what you're doing and how do you celebrate that versus tolerate that? Mm -hmm. Um, there's a big component around just like our principles and values and how do you create with intention and, and how do you ensure that they align with the principles and they align with our values and they're still trustworthy. So there's a whole framework around how we're thinking about innovation in the space. And at the end of the day, it comes down to what you're like the culture of the organization that you're building, because, if you can't operate at scale, then you end up only having small pockets of us that are talking about this versus how do we get every engineer to ask, what's this going to be used for and who's going to use it? Um, or what if this could happen? And we need people to start asking those types of questions and then start talking about, well, how do we architect things in a way that's responsible? Um, but I'd say like most engineers probably don't ask those types of questions right now. And so we're trying to build that into the culture of how we design and and um, develop new technologies. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I often find frustrating about this conversation, particularly when talking to technology vendors, is this kind of default answer, well, you know, we just make the guns, we don't shoot them, right? We just make the technologies, you know, it's they're, you know, they can be used for good. They can also be used for bad. But we're focused on, you know, the the um, the good as aspects. It sounds like, yeah, maybe you. Well, I'm curious. How do you articulate, you know, your responsibility with the tools that you're creating, or Microsoft's responsibility mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. the tools it's creating? Do you have a? Well, I have a very similar reaction to you when when I hear. Oh, we're just making tools. I, th <laughs> I think, well, fine. That's one perspective. But mm -hmm. the responsible perspective is we're making tools and we understand that they can be used in these ways and we've architected them so that they cannot be misused. And we know that there will be people that misuse them. So I think... Um, I, and you're hearing a lot of this in the technology space, and if you know, there's a, every year there's more and more of it where people are saying, "Look, we have to be responsible, we have to be accountable," and and so I think we'll hear fewer and fewer people saying what you're hearing, what I'm hearing as well. Um, but one of the things we have to do is we have to avoid the ideal path and just talking only about the ideal path because it's mm. really easy to just say, here's the great ways that this technology was going to be used and not even talk about the other side because then, again, we fall into that pattern of, well, we only thought about it from this one perspective. And so one of the things that my group is trying to do is to make it okay to talk about here's how it could go wrong so that it becomes part of our you know daily habit and, and we do it at various levels. You know, we do it at our all hands. So when people are showing our technology, we have them show the dark side of it at the same time so that we can talk about that in an open space and it becomes okay to talk about it. No one wants to share the bad side of technology, right? No one, no one wants to do that. But if we make it okay to talk about it, 
then we can start talking about well, how do we prevent that. Um, so we do that at like, you know, larger forums. And then, um, you know, this, I know this is a podcast, but I, sh- I wanted to show you something. So I'll talk about it. But we created, um, it's almost like a game, but it's, it's a way for us to look at different stakeholders and perspectives and what could happen. And so how do we create a safe environment where you can look at one of our ethical principles, you can look at um, a stakeholder that is interacting with the system. And then you say, well, if the stakeholders, you know, for example, is a woman in a car and your system is a voice recognition system, what would she say if she gave it a one-star review? She would probably say, I had to yell a lot and didn't recognize me because we know that most of our systems are not tuned to be diverse, right? And so we start creating this environment for us to talk about these types of things so that it becomes okay again, right? Like how do we create safe spaces? And then as we develop our scenarios, how do we... um, bring those up and then track them and say, well, how do we fix it? Now that we've, we've excavated these issues, well, let's fix it and let's talk about it. So that's, again, part of culture. Like, how do we make it mm-hmm. okay to bring up the bad parts of things, right? So it's not just the ideal path. Mm-hmm. Do you run into or run up against engineers or executives that say, you know, introspection, safe spaces, you know, granola, you know, what about the bottom line? What does this mean for you know, us as a business? How do we, you know, think about this from a shareholder perspective? You know, it's um, it's interesting. I, I don't actually hear a lot of that pushback okay. because um, I think, you know, internally at Microsoft, there is this recognition of, hey, we want to be really thoughtful and intentional. And um, and I think the bigger issue that we hear is just like, how do we do it? It's not that we don't want to. It's, well, how do we do it and how do we do it at scale? Um, and so what are the different things you can put in place to help people um, bring this into their practice? And so, you know, there isn't a pushback around, well, this is going to like it's, it's going to affect my bottom line. It's going to affect my bottom line. But there's more of a um, understanding that yeah, if we build things that are thoughtfully designed and intentional and ethical, that it's better for our customers. I mean, our customers want that too. Um, but then again, the question is, well, well, how do we do it, and where does it manifest? So there's things that we're doing in that space. I mean, when you look at AI, a big part of it is data. So how do you look at the data that's being used to power some of these systems and say, is this a diverse data set? Is this well-rounded? Do we have gaps here? What's the bias in here? Um, And so we start looking at certain components of our systems and um, helping to, again, architect it in a way that's, that's better. I think all of our customers would want a system that recognized all voices Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and because again, to them, they wouldn't want a system where it just worked for men. It didn't work for women. So again, it's like better product as a result. And so mm-hmm. if we can couch it in terms of better product, then I think it makes sense versus if it's all about, um, us philosophizing and only doing that, I don't know if that's the best, you know, only doing that is right. not, it's not productive. Right. Do you find that the uncertainty around, uh, ethical issues related to AI has been an impediment to customers uh, adopting it. Does that get in the way? Do they uh, do they need these issues to be figured out before they dive in? I don't think it's getting in the way, but I think it's um, 
What I'm hearing from customers is help us think about these issues. And, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of customers don't understand AI deeply, right? It's, it's a complex space and a lot of people are ramping up in it. And so the question is more about, well, what should I be aware of? What are the questions that I should be asking? And how can we do this together? We know you guys are thinking about this deeply. Um, we're getting just involved in it, you know, a customer might say. And so they, it's more about how do we educate each other? And for us, we want to understand, like, how do you want to use this? Because sometimes we don't always know the use case for the customer. So we want to deeply understand that to make sure that what we're building actually works for what they are trying to do. And from their perspective, they want to understand, well, how does this technology work? And where will it fail? And where will it not work for my customers? And so the question of ethics is more about um, we don't understand the space well enough, help us understand it. And we are concerned about what it could do. And can we work together on that? Mm -hmm. So it's um, it's not preventing them from adopting it, but there's there's definitely a lot of dialogue. It comes up quite a bit around, well, like we've heard this, we've heard bias is an issue. Well, what does that mean? Right. 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 And so we, and so I think that's an education opportunity. When you think about ethics from a, a technology innovation perspective, are there examples of, you know, things that you've seen either that Microsoft is doing or out in the, the broader world that strike you as uh, innovative approaches to this problem? Yeah, you know, um, I'll go back to the data side of things just briefly, but uh, there's this concept called data sheets, which I think is super interesting. Yeah. Um, you're probably really familiar with that. And I've uh, written about some of the work that oh, Tim Nick Gebru and yes. some others with Microsoft have done right. around data sheets for data sets. Exactly. And the, the interesting part for us is, well, how do you put it into the platform? How do you mm -hmm. bake that in? And um, and so what, one of the pieces of work that we're doing is we're taking this notion of data sheets and we are applying it uh, into how we are collecting data and how we're um, building out our platform. And so I think that that's, um, I don't know if it's super novel because it, to me it's like a nutrition label for your data. Like you want to understand how is it collected, what's in it, how can you use it. But, um, but I think that that's one where now as people leave the group, you know, you want to make sure that there's some history and understanding the mm -hmm. composition of it. There's some regulation around how we manage it internally and how we manage data in a thoughtful way. I think that's just a really interesting concept that we should be talking about more as an industry. And then can we share data between each other in a way that's responsible as well? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that the, the data sheet, I mean, I think inherent to the idea was that, hey, this isn't novel. In fact, look right. at, you know, electrical components and all these other industries that do this. Yep. Uh, it's just common sense, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, but what is a little novel, I think, is actually doing it. So mm -hmm. since that paper was published, um, several companies have uh, published kind of similar takes, model cards, mm -hmm. and there there have been a handful. And every time I hear about them, I ask, okay, so when is this, you know, <laughs> when are you going to be publishing the, these for your services and the data sets that you're publishing? Mm -hmm. And uh, no one's done it yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's uh, it's intriguing to hear you say that you're at least starting to think in this way internally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, do you have a sense for what the 
you know, the path to publishing these kinds of, you know, whether it's a data sheet or a card or some kind of set of parameters around um, bias, either in a data set or a model, you know, for a, a commercial public service? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're actually looking at doing this for facial recognition. And uh, we've publicly commented about that. We've said, hey, we're going to be sharing for our services what they're what it's great for and what it's not, where it's... Um, and so that stuff is actually actively being worked on right now. Um, you'll probably see more of this in the f- next few weeks, but, but there is um, public comment that's going to come out um, with more details about it. And I'll say that, you know, on the data sheet side, I think a large portion of it is it needs to get implemented in the engineering systems first, and um, and you need to find the right place to put it. And so that's that's the stuff that we're working on actively right now. Can you comment more on that? I, it, it does, as you say that, it does... Um, strike me a little bit as one of these iceberg kind of problems. Like it, you know, it, you know, looks uh, very manageable, kind of above the waterline. But if you think about what goes into the creation of a data set or a model, there's a lot of complexity, and certainly, at, you know, the scale of Microsoft is working at it needs to be automated. What are some of the challenges that have come into play in in uh, trying to to implement an idea like that? Well, um, let me think about this for a second so I can frame it the right way. The biggest challenge for us on something like that is um, really thinking through the data collection effort first and spending a little bit of time there. That's where we're actually spending quite a bit of time as we look at um, so let me back up for a second. I, I work in an engineering group that touches all the speech, language, vision technologies. And we do an enormous amount of data collection to power those technologies. One of the things that we're first spending time on is looking at exactly how we're collecting data and going through those methodologies and saying, is this the right way that we should be doing this? Do we want to change it in any way? Do we want to optimize it? And then we want to go and apply that back in. So you're right, this is a big iceberg because there's so many pieces that are connected to it. And the spec for data sheets and the ones we've seen are large. And um, and so what we've done is how do we grab the core pieces of this and implement and create the starting point for it and then scale over time, add versioning, being able to add your own custom schemas to it and scale over time. But what is like the minimum piece that we can put into the system and then make sure that it's working the way we want it to? And so it's just, it's about decomposing the problem and saying, which ones do we want to prioritize first? Um, For us, we're spending a lot of time just looking at the data collection methodologies first, Mm -hmm. because there's so much of that going on. And at the same time, what is the minimum part of the data sheet spec that we want to go and put in, and then let's start iterating together on that. It strikes me that these will be most useful when there's kind of broad industry adoption or at least coalescence around some, you know, standard, whether it's a standard minimum that everyone's doing and uh, potentially growing over time. Are you involved in or aware of any efforts to create something like that? Well, I think that that's, um, that's one piece where it's important. I would say also in a large corporation, it's important internally as well, mm. because we work with so many different teams um, and we're interfacing with, you know, we're a platform where we interface with large parts of our organization and um, and being able to share that information internally, that 
is a really important piece to the puzzle as well. I think the external part is as well, but the internal one is not um, not any less important in my eyes because that's where we are. We want to make sure that if we are have a set of data that this you know group A is using it in one way, if group B wants to use it, we want to make sure that they have the rights to use it. They understand what it's composed of, where its orientation is, and um, and so that if they pick it up, they do it with full knowledge of what's in it. So um, for us internally, it's a really big deal. Externally, um, I've heard pockets of this, but I don't think I could really comment on that yet with okay. you know like full authority. I'm really curious about the intersection between ethics and design. And uh, you mentioned human-centered design earlier. My sense is that that, that phrase kind of captures a lot of that intersection. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on what that means for you? Yeah, or? yeah. Um, so when you look at traditional design functions, uh, when we talk about human-centered design, there is, there's lots of different human-centered design frameworks. The one I typically pick up is um, Don Norman's you know, emotional design framework, where he talks about um, behavioral design, uh, reflective design, and visceral design. And, um, and so behavior is, you know, how is something functioning? What is the functionality of it? Um, reflective is how does it make you feel about yourself? You know, how does it play to your ego and your personality? And um, uh, visceral is, you know, the look and feel of that. That's a very um, individual-oriented approach to design. And when I think about these large systems, you actually need to bring in the ecosystem into that. So how does this object you're creating or this system you're creating, how does it fit into the ecosystem? And so one of the things we've been playing around with is we've actually reached into adjacent areas like agriculture and explore like how do you do sustainable agriculture? What are some of those principles and methodologies and how do you apply that into our space? So a lot of the conversations we're having is around ecosystems and how do you insert something into the ecosystem and what happens to it? What is the ripple effect of that? And then how do you do that in a way that keeps that whole thing sustainable? So it's not, um, it, it's a good solution versus one that's bad and um, and causes other downstream effects. So I think that those are changes that we have to have in our design methodology. We're looking we're looking away from the one artifact and thinking about it from a you know here's how the one user is going to work with it versus how is the society and going to interact with it? How are different communities going to interact with it? And what does that do to that community? Um, it's a larger problem. And so there's like this shift in design thinking that we're trying to do with our designers. So they're not just doing UI, they're not just thinking about this one system, they're thinking about it holistically. Um, And there isn't a framework that we can easily pick up. So we have to kind of construct one as we are going along. Yeah. Yeah, For a while, a couple of years ago, maybe I was having, I was in search of that framework. Uh, And and I think the, the motivation was just really early experiences of seeing kind of AI shoved into products in ways that were frustrating or annoying. Like for example, a Nest thermostat, like (laughs) you, it's intended to be very simple, but it's making these decisions for you in a way that you can't really control. And it's starting me down this path of, you know, what does it mean to really build out, uh, you know, a, a discipline of design that, 
is aware of AI and intelligence. Mm-hmm. I, I've joked on the podcast before that, you know, I, I call it intelligent design, but mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. overloaded term. It totally is. <laughs> <laughs> but like, is there a term for that now? Are people thinking about that? How far have we come in building out, um, you, know, you know, a discipline or a way of thinking of what it means to build intelligence into products? Yeah, um, we have done a lot of work around education for our designers because um, we found a big gap between what our engineers were doing and talking about and what our designers had awareness over. So we actually created a deep learning for designers workshop. It was a two-day workshop, and it was really intensive. So we took, um, you know, neural nets, convolutions, like all these concepts, and we introduced them to designers in a way that designers would understand it. Um, we, you know, brought it to, here's how you think about it in terms of Photoshop. Here's how you think about it in terms of the tools you're using and the words you use there. Here's how it would apply. Here's a exercise where people had to get out of, a, out of their seats and we created a really simple neural net with human beings. And, um, and we had them coding as well. And so they were coding in Python and um, in notebooks. And so they were... Uh, they were exposed to it, and and we exposed them to a lot of the techniques and terminology in a way that was concrete. And they were able to then say, "Oh, this is what style transfer looks like. Oh, this is what this is how we constructed a bot." And so, um, first on the design side, I think having the vocabulary to be able to say, "Oh, I know what this word means." Not just I know what it means, but I've experienced it, so then I can have a meaningful discussion with my engineer. I think that 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 was an important piece. And then understanding how AI systems are just different from regular systems. They are more probabilistic in nature. The defaults matter. They are they can be self-learning. And so how do we think about these and starting to showcase case studies with our designers to understand that these types of systems are quite different from the deterministic type of systems that you may have designed for in the past. Um, again, I think it comes back to culture because it was... There's a, and we keep doing these workshops every quarter. We'll do another one because we have so much demand for it. And we found even engineers and PMs will come to our design workshops. But um, kind of democratizing the terminology a little bit and making it concrete to people was an, is an important part of this. It's interesting to think about what it does to a designer's design process to have more intimate knowledge of these concepts. Mm-hmm. At the same time, a lot of the questions that come to mind for me are, you know, much higher level concepts in the in the the, the domain of design. For example, you know, we talk about user experience. Uh, to what degree should a user experience AI, if that makes any sense? Should we be trying to make AI or or you know this notion of intelligence invisible to users mm-hmm. or very visible to users? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this has come up. You know, recently in, for example, I'm thinking of like Google Duplex when they announced mm-hmm. uh, that that system was going to be making phone calls to people, mm-hmm. and there was a big kerfuffle about whether that should be disclosed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I I don't know that there's a right answer. Like in some ways, you want some of this stuff to be invisible. In other ways, you know, tying back to the whole ethics conversation, it does make sense that you know there's some degree of disclosure. Yeah, absolutely. And then I imagine as a designer, this notion of disclosure is can be a very nuanced thing. What does that even yeah, mean? Yeah, and it's all context dependent, and it's all norm dependent as mm-hmm. well. Because if you were to look into the future, 
and say, are people more comfortable? I mean, look at airports, for example. People are walking through just using Face ID, using the clear system. And um, a few years ago, I think if you asked people, would you feel comfortable doing that? Most people would say, no, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't want that. Um, and so I think in this space, because it's really fluid and new norms are being established and things are being tested out, uh, we have to be on top of how people are feeling and thinking about these technologies where, so that we understand where some disclosure needs to happen and where things don't. And, um, and in a lot of cases, you almost want to assume disclosure for things that are very consequential and high stakes. Um, where there is opportunity for deception in the duplex case, you have to be thoughtful about that. Um, and so it's this isn't one where you, you can say, okay, you should always disclose. It just depends on the context. And so we have this notion of consequential um, scenarios where things are, you know, if there's automated decision-making, if there are scenarios where there is um, there are high stake scenarios. Those ones we think about um, in a we just put a little bit more due diligence over those and start to be more thoughtful about those. And then we have you know other types of scenarios which are um, more systems oriented. And here's some things that are operationally oriented, and they end up having different types of scenarios. But we haven't been able to create. A, here's the exact way you do every single, you know, you approach it in every single mm -hmm. way. So it is so super context dependent and expectation dependent. Um, maybe after a while you get used to your Nest thermostat and you're fine with the way it's operating, <laughs> right? And so, um, so I, I don't know. These social norms are interesting because they are. Someone will go and establish something, or they'll test the waters. You know, Google Glass tested the waters. And um, that was a cultural response, right? People responded and said, I don't want to be surveilled. I don't want, I want to be able to go to a bar and get a drink and not have someone recording me. Right. And, um, and so I think we have to understand where society is relative to what the technologies are that we're inserting into them. And so again, it comes back to, do we, are we listening to users? Are we just putting tech out there? I think we mm -hmm. have to really start listening to users. Um, my group has a fairly large research component to it, and we spend a lot of time talking to people, especially in the places where we're going to be putting some tech and um, understanding what it's going to do to the dynamic and how they're um, how they're reacting to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it strikes me that uh, yeah, maybe it's kind of the engineer background in me that's looking mm -hmm. for like a, a framework, a, yeah. you know, a flow chart for how we can approach this problem and. Uh, I need to embrace more of the designer that's like, well, every, you know, product, every situation is different. And it's more about a principled approach as opposed Absolutely. to a, a process. Absolutely. It's more about a principled and intentional approach. Mm. So what, what we're talking about is everything that you're choosing, are you intentional about that choice? And are you very thoughtful about things like defaults? Because we know that people don't change them. And so how do you think about every single design choice and being principled and in very inten intentional and evidence-driven. And so mm -hmm. we push this on our teams. And I think some of our teams maybe don't enjoy being with us sometimes as a result, but we say, look, we're going to give you some recommendations that are going to be principled, intentional, and evidence-driven. And we want to hear back from you if you don't agree on your evidence and why you're saying this is a good or bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's the way you have to operate right now because it is so con context-driven.
I wonder if you can talk through some examples of how, you know, human-centered design, AI, all these things come together in the context of kind of concrete problems that you've looked at. Yeah, I was thinking about this because a lot of the work that we do is um, fairly confidential, but there's one that I can touch on, which was shared at Build earlier this year, and that was um, a meeting room device. And I don't know if you remember this, but there's a meeting room device that we're working on that um, recognizes who's in the room and um, does transcription of Mm -hmm. that meeting. And um, it, to me, as someone who is a manager, I love the idea of having a, a, room, a device in the room that captures action items and who right. was here and what was said. And, uh, and so we started looking at this and we said, okay, well, let's look at different types of meetings and people. And let's look at categories of people that um, this might affect differently. And so how do you think about introverts in a meeting? How do you think about women and minorities? Because... There are subtle dynamics that are happening in meetings that um, make some of these relationships, they can um, reinforce certain types of stereotypes or relationships. And so we started um, interviewing people in the context of this sort of meeting room device. And um, and this is research that is pretty well uh, it's, it's well recognized. It's not um, it's it's not novel research, but but um, it reinforced the fact that when you start putting in things that will monitor anyone that's in a room, certain categories of people behave differently, and you see larger discrepancies um, and, and impact with women, minorities, more junior people. And so we said, wow, this is really interesting because as soon as you put a recording device in a room, it's going to subtly shift the dynamic where some people might talk less or some people might feel like they're observed or depending on if there's a manager in the room and there's a device in a room, they're going to behave differently. And does that result in a good meeting or a bad one? We're not Mm -hmm. sure, but that will affect the dynamic. And so then we took a lot of this research and we went back to the product team and said, well, how do we now design this in such a way that we design with privacy first in mind and um, make users feel like they're empowered to opt into it. And so we've had discussions like that, especially around these types of um, devices where we've seen big impact to how people behave. But it's not like a hard guideline or it's not really a hard set of rules around what you have to do But you know, because all meetings are different, right? You have brainstorming ones that are more about fluid ideas. You don't really care who said what. It's about getting all the ideas out. You have ones where you're shipping something important and you want to know who said what because there are clear action items that go with them. And so um, trying to create a system that works with so many different nuanced conversations and um, different scenarios is not an easy one. So what we do is we we will run alongside with the product team. And while they're engineering, you know, they're developing their work, we will take the research where, that we've gathered and we'll create alternatives for them at the same time so that we can run alongside with them. We can say, hey, here's option A, B, C, D, and E. Let's play with these. And maybe we come up with a version that mixes them all together, but um, but it gives them options to think about because, again, it comes back to, well, I might not have time to think about all of this, so how do we empower people with ideas and um, and concrete things to, to look at? Yeah, I think that example is a, a great example of the complexity or um, maybe complexity is not the right word, but the the idea that your initial reaction might be like the exact opposite of what you need to do. Like yeah. As you were saying this, I was like, oh, just hide the thing so no one knows it's there. It doesn't change the dynamic. <laughs> I was like, that's exactly wrong. <laughs> right. You don't want to do that. Don't hide right, it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. 
and maybe that's another piece. I'm sorry to interrupt that, but but one of the things I've noticed is the our initial reaction is often wrong. Mm. And so how do we hold it at the same time of, that we give ourselves a space to explore other things and then keep an open mind and say, okay, I have to adjust and change because hiding it would absolutely be an interesting option. But then you have so many issues with right. that, right? Um, but again, like it is about being able to have like an open mindset and being able to challenge yourself in this space. Do you have a sense for where, you know, if we kind of buy into the idea that folks that are working with AI need to be more thoughtful and more intentional and and maybe incorporate more of this into um, more of this design thinking element to their work. Do you have a sense for where this, you know, does or should or needs to live within uh, a customer organization? Yeah, I think it actually, and this is a terrible answer, but I think it needs to live everywhere in some ways because um, what one thing that we're noticing is we have we have corporate level things that happen. We have an you know an ether board. It's our um, it's an advisory board that looks at AI technologies and advises, and that's at a corporate level, and that's a really interesting way of um, approaching it. But it can't live alone. And so the thing that we have learned is that if we pair it with groups like mine that sit in the engineering context that are able to translate principles, concepts, guidelines into practice, that sort of partnership has been really powerful because um, we can take those principles and say, well, here's where it really worked and here's where it kind of didn't work. And then we can also find um, issues and say, well, we're grappling with this issue that you guys hadn't thought about. How do you think about this? And can we create a broader principle around it? So I think that there's this like strong cycle of feedback that happens. If you have something at the corporate level or you establish just what your values are, what are our guidelines and what are our approaches? But then at the engineering context, you have a team that can problem solve and apply. And um, then you can create a really tight feedback loop between that engineering team and your corporate team so that you're continually reinforcing each other. Because the worst thing would be just to have a corporate level thing and, and just be PR speak, right? You don't want mm-hmm. that, right, right? right? And the worst thing would also be just to have it in the engineering level because then you would have a very... Um, uh, distributed mechanism of doing something may not cohesively ladder up to your principles. And so I think you kind of need both and to have them work off e- each other to really have something effective. And um, maybe there's other things as well, but so far this has been um, a really productive and iterative uh, experiment that we're doing. Do any pointers come to mind for folks that want to explore this space more deeply? Do you have a top three favorite resources or initial directions? Well, it depends what you want to explore. So I was uh, reading the AI Now report the other day. It's you know, a fairly large report, 65-page report around the impact of AI in different systems. Um, different industries. And so if you're looking at getting up to speed on, well, what areas is AI going to impact? I would start with some of these types of groups because um, I found that they are super thoughtful and um, how they're going into each space and understanding each space and then bubbling up some of the scenarios. Um, so if you're thinking about AI from a, you know, how is it impacting? Those types of things are, are really interesting. Um, on the engineering side, I actually spend a lot of time on a few Facebook groups 
where they have um, just some big AI groups in Facebook and they're always sharing, here's the latest, here's what's going on, I've tried this technique. And so that keeps me kind of up to speed on some of those that are happening and also archive just to see what research is being published. Um, the design side, I'm sort of mixed. I mean, I haven't really found a strong spot yet. Um, I wish I had like something in my back pocket where I could just refer to, but the thing that maybe has been, um, on the theory side that has been super, um, interesting is to go back to a few set, a few people that have made commentaries just around sustainable design. So I refer back to Wendell Berry quite a bit, the agriculturalist and um, poet, actually, who has really introspected how agriculture could be uh, reframed. Um, Ursula Franklin is also a commentary from Canada. She was um, she did a lot of uh, podcasts or radio um, broadcasts a long time ago, and she has a whole series around technology and um, its societal impact. And if you replace a few of those words and put in some of our new age words, it would still hold true. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of theory out there, but not a lot of like, here's really great examples of, of what you can do, because we're all still feeling out the space and we haven't found a, um, perfect patterns yet that mm -hmm. you can democratize and share out broadly. Romero, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about this uh, stuff. is a, a really interesting space and one that I enjoy coming back to uh, periodically. And I personally believe that there's, you know, this intersection of AI and design is one that is just wide open and, and uh, should and will be further developed. Um, and... I'm kind of looking forward to keeping an eye on it and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about it. Thank you so much, Sam. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.